right now, I'd like to ask you to turn your attention to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, as we continue our series um, on the Word made flesh. And I, I just want to start by asking you if you've ever gotten a Christmas present you didn't want. Has anybody not gotten a Christmas present they didn't want? I mean, this is, this is a universal thing, isn't it? Because there's a couple of problems. There, there are people who don't have any idea what to get you, and so they just kind of take a shot in the dark. And then there's those people who think they know what's best for you, right? Oh, you would really look good in this. No, actually, I wouldn't, you know? Oh, you would love this movie. You know, actually, I would hate watching that movie. So, so we've all gotten those presents. Remember when you were a kid, how discouraging it was, how disappointing it was when you got clothes on Christmas. I mean, these days, I love it. I love it when my wife or my kids or somebody else gets me a nice shirt. But back when I was a kid, I wanted toys, man. I didn't want socks. And you would see that and you'd be like, yeah, thanks, Aunt Margaret. I don't actually have an Aunt Margaret. And that's just, you know, don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Um, and, and I can remember when I was a kid, this is a true story. My dad used to tell me every Christmas, you know, I talked to Santa Claus and made sure he's going to bring you a Barbie this year. And that used to scare me to death. I knew my dad was joking, but I was like, you know, this is serious business. Christmas morning is the most important time of year, and I, don't, I can't afford to take any chances. So there was a little anxiety that I was going to open up, you know, Princess Ice Queen Barbie or something one Christmas, and it would just ruin my life. Um, now, these days, I don't worry about Christmas presents so much, and I doubt you do either if you're an adult. Um, although... Wouldn't it be a little disappointing if someone gave you a dieting book for Christmas or, or, or a gift card to a cosmetic surgeon? Because if you're thankful for a gift like that, you're saying, yes, I am fat and ugly. Thank you. Um, and, and by the way, I've been watching TV like most of you, so I've seen commercials, and I just want to give you some advice. Husbands, listen to me. If you don't hear anything else I say, do not, under any circumstances, buy your wife an expensive uh, exercise bike, okay? It's just not going to work out well for you. I don't care what the commercials say. So today, what I want us to talk about is the most controversial gift of all. The gift that has been rejected more often than any other, and yet the greatest gift we've ever received. See, we're in a series on the prologue of the Gospel of John. John starts his gospel differently than any of the other three gospel writers. John, in John chapter 1, calls Jesus the Word, and that's not a title he's given anywhere else in Scripture. And as we shared two weeks ago, by the way, last week, we skipped it because we had our musical presentation, and wasn't that fantastic? I mean, was that not the best Christmas music you've ever heard? Our choir and orchestra are just awesome. I don't know how they do it, but every year it just gets better, and I just, I'm in awe of, of it's just so God-honoring every year. I can't wait for it again next year. But two weeks ago, we started by talking about how when John first wrote these words, and he's talking about the Word made flesh. To a Jew like John, they would have heard that and thought about the Word of God, the, the command of God that goes out into the world and shows us who God is and what He wants. Uh, if you were a Greek in those days, as many in that culture were, you would have read that and you would have seen the Greek word logos and you would have thought of that Greek philosophical, philosophical concept uh, that there is a, an overarching theme to the world, that, that there is a meaning to life. And he's saying Jesus is that meaning of life. Yes, Jesus is the Word of God who has come into the world to show us who He is. But today I want us to look at verse 6 through 13 and, and talk about how that Word came into the world, but the world didn't actually want what God sent them. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness to the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came bear witness about the light. Now let me just take a quick pause. 
We'll read the rest of the passage in just a moment. But John that he mentions there is not the one writing this gospel. I know this is the gospel of John, but this, here's a fun fact you may not know. John the apostle never actually mentions himself by name in his own gospel. He's talking here about the guy we know as John the Baptist. And he's one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture, and not just because he's called the Baptist. And, you know, I'm always proud that there's not a Bubba the Presbyterian or something in the Bible. But, but you realize he's not called John the Baptist because he went to a Baptist church. There was no such thing as the Baptist church back then. Probably a good thing. So he's called the Baptist because he baptized people. And that was a new thing back then. The Jews used to have a practice of ceremonially washing people who wanted to convert to Judaism. But John was revolutionary in that he looked at his fellow Jews and said, you need to be washed too. You need repentance as well. Just being Jewish is not enough. You have to be changed. John was, and this is what I want to say before I go on with this passage. John was the perfect model for what we should look for in our preachers and pastors today. Because today we make pastors into celebrities, we make pastors into larger-than-life figures, we put them on a pedestal, and, and I get a lot of literature, I read a lot of blogs, and I see a lot of things that are t encouraging pastors like me, increase the size of your platform, make your name known, etc., etc. It's all about getting yourself out there, and yet, what did John do? John put on camel's hair and went out into the wilderness. You had to want to hear the message to get to John. You had to walk in the desert. And once you got there, you didn't hear a happy message. You didn't hear a message that made you feel good about yourself. He was the anti-prosperity gospel guy. Because when you got there, he said you were a snake and a sinner and you had to change. And he maybe next to Jesus, the most powerful preacher who ever lived, and yet he consistently, consistently pointed away from himself toward Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one who's coming. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And my favorite thing he said, I must decrease so that he can increase. I need to get out of the way so others can see him. So I say all that to say this. I know, I know if you're a serious Christian and you want to grow, you probably have your favorite uh, pastors that you, you listen to and podcast and read their stuff. And that's great. And yeah, absolutely make sure they're, they're doctrinally, doctrinally sound and can actually form sentences. Uh, number two, make sure that they're effective preachers. That's all great. But don't follow them unless you see humility. That's, that's the missing piece in a lot of pastors. That's something that I'm praying that God would install in me because what we need is humility. We need to point beyond ourselves to Jesus, all right? So, we go on with verse... 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So verses 10 and 11 are kind of the heart of this passage, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came into this world that he made and the world rejected him. And I want you to think for just a moment about how difficult it was for a man like John the Apostle, who was proudly and gratefully Jewish, who grew up in that chosen people and had, like all other Jews of his age, looked forward to the coming Messiah that they'd been promised centuries ago. And when he finally came, they rejected him. 
And it was so hard for people like John and like Paul to understand and to wrap their minds around. Paul, when you read Romans 9 through 11, it's all about what are we going to do about Israel because Israel has rejected its Messiah. And, John's, and Paul's conclusion in Romans 9 through 11 is God hasn't given up on His people. He's going to bring them back in. But in the meantime, Paul's heart is for his fellow Jews so greatly that he actually says in Romans 9, 3, I would gladly trade my salvation for theirs. I would give mine up if it meant they could come home and have their Messiah as their king, as it was intended to be. And we see it from the very beginning in the, in the Christmas story itself, the rejection that Jesus is going to face. Because think about the gospel story, the way it begins in that little manger. And here's the, the Son of God coming into the world. You would think, I mean, two Hollywood movie stars have a baby, and we splash their pictures all over, uh, all over media, don't we? And yet the Son of God comes into the world most important child ever born, and no one showed up. The words of the Christmas carol, the hopes and fears of all the years, are met in thee tonight. And who was there? No scholars, no priests, no politicians looking for a photo op, just a few smelly shepherds. That's it. And then months or even years later, along come these magi, these mysterious visitors from the east, astrologers probably, wise men who counseled kings based on what they saw in the heavens, and they had seen something unusual in the heavens, and they knew something of the Hebrew Scriptures. They were able to relate the two and follow that star to Jerusalem. And when they got there, they asked this question in Matthew 2, 2-3, Where is He who has been born King of the Jews? For, when we, for we saw His star when it rose and have come to worship Him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, does anybody know this guy Herod, you familiar with him? Uh, he is known to history as Herod the Great. Do you know who gave Herod the Great his title, the Great? Herod the Great. Very good. You know, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Herod, um, according to the people who knew him personally, the people who lived through his reign, probably one of the worst, most uh, egomaniacal, paranoid, cruel dictators who ever lived, and that's saying something. He was a man who actually had several members of his own family, his own flesh and blood, executed because he suspected them of disloyalty. And so it's not surprising that when he hears that the Messiah has been born, his first thought is, oh no, not on my watch. I'm not giving up my throne to anybody. This is my throne, and I'm going to take care of anybody who pretends to claim it from me. And so when the Magi hear in a dream not to report back to Herod, that he has murderous intentions, he takes matters into his own hands and sends his gang of thugs, his group of soldiers, out to Bethlehem with orders to kill every boy two years old and under. This is the part of the Christmas story we almost never talk about. The slaughter of the innocents. Scholars will tell you that in a town the size of first century Bethlehem, that's probably 20 or 30 little boys who died. And that's hard for us to grasp. Think about how we feel when we're watching the news and we hear about a school shooting and we hear that 15 or, or 17 kids have been shot and killed and how tragic that is. And it is. Just multiply that when you think this wasn't just some random psychotic person with a gun. This was your own government, your own king taking the lives of all these children. And on the other hand, it, it also it causes us a struggle as Christians because we say, yeah, God spared His Son, but He didn't spare those other babies. Why? We'll get back to that in a moment. See, 
we're often, when we finally confront that story, we often want to just pass by it and say, well, you know, the world's a bad place. Uh, Herod was a terrible king, but there's something more actually going on here. When you look deeper, when you read the New Testament, it's very, very clear that all of us are King Herod at heart. I don't mean we're murderous necessarily. Very few of us actually are that violent. But all of us, all of us rebel against the thought of making Jesus our King. All of us. All of us rebel against the thought of God being in charge. We don't want a king. We want a consultant, don't we? Somebody to tell us how to make the right decisions so we can get what we want out of life. We want a fairy godmother. We don't want a messiah. We want someone to show up and bibbidi-bobbidi-boo us into success. I don't know how I could say that and not say philosophy while ago, but anyway. We don't want a king. And the Bible's clear on this. Romans 8, 7 says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. You may say, oh, I've never, I've never hated God. I've never been His enemy. Yes, you have. And yes, I have. And yes, we still are every time we decide to let our flesh rule our spirit instead of God's Holy Spirit. Every time we say, I'm doing things my way. Every time we get angry when someone confronts us with our own sin and our own flaws, we're hostile towards God. Colossians 1.21 describes us this way, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind. The old poem we've probably heard, Invictus, it says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. No one tells me what to do. This is my life. And we resent anyone who steps in the way of us, including God Himself. And that's why atheism is a, is a choice that some people make. 10% now is the latest statistic. 10% of Americans claim atheism as their system of belief. Now, that's not most of America. Most of America still says, yes, there probably is a God. But a growing, growing number say, well, I, I believe there probably is a God, but I don't think it's possible to know who He is. And I certainly don't think those church-type people know who He is. And, and, and it's fine if you want to go to church and if you want to believe that kind of stuff and if you want to pray, just don't bring all that stuff to me. Just don't try to convert me and we'll be fine. And even a lot of us religious people, if we're honest, Jesus isn't really king in our lives. Not consistently. Jesus isn't king. We call on Him when we need Him. Mostly, we try our best to manipulate Him though, don't we? We use our religious devotion as a tool to get out of Him what we want. Okay, Lord, I'll pay my dues. I'll sit through the sermon. I'll put money in the plate. I'll try hard to keep the commandments, but in return, you need to give me my little slice of the American dream. And then when it doesn't happen, when we get downsized, when our savings account vanishes overnight, when we go to the doctor and we hear words we didn't want to hear, when we're grieving a loved one who's passed away suddenly, when our marriage falls apart, when one of our kids goes off the rails, when we struggle with depression, we want to say, okay, God, I've been doing all this for you. What do I get in return? This is how you repay me? Those aren't the words of the subject of a king. Those are the words of a dissatisfied customer. Ask yourself the question, in my relationship to God, am I more of a customer or a subject? Am I more of a client or a servant? The world doesn't need churches full of customers, and yet that's exactly what they're giving them. Is there any reason, is, there any, is it any wonder why 
churches aren't growing like they once did. Is it any wonder why our country's in the shape that it's in? Because the people who are sent here to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth, that's you and me, we're a bunch of complaining customers, dissatisfied clients. Instead of the missionaries and warriors for Christ, we are called and anointed to be. But here's the good news. Jesus is a different kind of king, isn't He? Jesus is not like any other king, any other leader we've ever had. I mean, you look at any ruler, king, dictator, prime minister, president, they all operate the same way. If you're good to me, I'll be good to you. You vote for me, I will bless you. You be part of my base, I'll do what you say. Scratch my back, I'll make sure things go well for you. But if you're disloyal to me, you're going to pay. That's the way this world operates. Jesus is a different kind of king, though. Romans 5.10 says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Remember, we've already said, all of us have been and still at, our time, at times enemies of God, doing things our way. We're like assassins who are out to get the king, to remove him from the throne so we can do what we want. And what happens when an assassin is caught? That person has to be made an example of. That person has to be killed. He's a threat to the crown. But Jesus is the only king, the only president, the only dictator ever who comes up and says, spare the assassin and take my life instead. While he was my enemy, I died for him. I will take his place. I will give Him my righteousness. I will give Him my freedom. I will give Him all of this that I deserve and take upon myself what He deserves, what she deserves. See, when you look back at that story of Bethlehem and the infants who died, you need to understand that God didn't actually spare His Son. He just saved Him for an atoning death. Oh, how much better would it have been for Jesus if He died as a baby instead of dying as a 33-year-old man on a cross? How much less painful would that have been? How much pain would He have been spared? See, Jesus, when He went to that cross, He was dying for the souls of those babies who died in Bethlehem. He was dying for the souls of the soldiers who killed them. And He was dying for you and for me. He did that for us knowingly, willingly, joyfully. What do you do with a love like that? How do you respond to that? See, it's funny, when I think back to me as a little boy and the stuff I was so excited about at Christmas time. Every year I had my list, right? I mean, that's what you do. And I was so excited to see, what am I going to get? Is it going to be the stuff on my list or not? Is it? And the funny thing is, I can only remember two or three things I got when I was a kid for Christmas. I'm serious. I can only remember a handful of things. And I got a lot of good Christmas presents. I just can't remember them anymore because they weren't that big a deal. That's a lot of time I spent wishing, wishing and hoping and praying and pleading. Wasted energy as it turns out because I got a lot of things I asked for. After a few years, it was just like, oh well, I don't even remember what that was. Didn't change my life. Didn't make life better. Brought me a little happiness and then it was gone. And I know you're going to hate this analogy, but it really is true. We're like children at Christmas. We've got our wish list, and we're focused on that. 
When meanwhile, the real gift, the gift that nobody asked for, is sitting there unused and unrejoiced over. And that is that God has come to claim the throne of your life and to show you the life you've always needed but didn't know you wanted. And so I think there's a lot of us here this morning, probably all of us, who need to say, God, Lord, forgive me for the many times and ways that I've been more like a customer than a subject, more like a client than a servant. Forgive me for all my complaining. And yes, there are a lot of things I do want. And yes, that's my true heart. And I, I don't want to deny that. But Lord, I trust you. You love me enough to die for me. You're wise enough to know all things. So I just trust you. If you don't give me what I want, what I really want, what I need most of all is you. I need you on the throne of my life. And I'm praying this today. And I have to pray it all over again because every day my heart erects a big old fortress around myself so I can be king once again. Will you pray a prayer something like that? It doesn't have to be those exact words. The best gift you'll ever receive is the one you didn't ask for, and that is the king of the world coming to be king of your heart.